The cool thing is there are a lot of similarities between multifamily investing and retail investing. It's basically taking the framework that we've used to build our multifamily portfolio and then applying it to retail. And the nice thing about retail is that there's less competition from what we're seeing versus the multifamily world. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Surgeon Syndicate. This is your host, Dr. Michael McManus, and we are here today with Karthik Mulpuri. Welcome to the show, Karthik. Thank you for having me on, Mike. All right. So Karthik and I met at the Invest Beyond Multifamily Conference first last February, right? So it's hasn't been quite a year. So tell us a little more. You've got a lot of things going on with your investing, with your real estate, with your job related to real estate. It's kind of a cool story. So give us a little introduction. Yeah. Yeah. So I started my career during the financial crisis. Uh, and so I started in investment banking, spent a couple of years in venture capital. And then my W-2 path led me to a few different finance and strategy executive roles in the startup world, the mix of early stage startups to late stage startups. And so that gave me a bit of the bug to do entrepreneurial activities. In the real estate world, my first passive investment in a syndication in 2018. And then when COVID hit, I was already thinking about it, right? But at the start of March, my wife and I, we left the New York City area and we came back to Northern Virginia where I grew up thinking that we'd be there for a few months and those few months stretched a few years. But that planted the seed in my mind to get active as an investor, right? So my excuse back when I was living in New York City was that it'd be tough for me to go acquire and asset manage multifamily assets hundreds of miles away. But what I did was at the start of COVID, I joined a multifamily-focused mastermind, learned the fundamentals behind what makes a good investment, how to asset manage these investments, and then how to finance these investments. And so that mastermind is where I found my core set of partners, my main partner. So in our real estate investing endeavor, we've focused primarily on multifamily, so value-add multifamily that sits between 20 and about 100 units. I focus on acquisitions and underwriting. So what I'm doing is I'm taking my finance background, right, from the investment banking side of things as a venture investor and as a operating executive. And then I'm repurposing that for real estate. And then the other piece that I'm repurposing as well is that in the venture world, what a junior VC is doing is they are cold calling, cold emailing, and trying to bring in as many top of funnel investments, top of funnel investment opportunities as they can for a more senior people to review, right? And so that is, I think, a part of the sourcing in the real estate side of things as well, right? Where I am pinging brokers regularly. I am running off market campaigns time to time to try to bring in as much top of funnel as I can to review, to determine what's a good opportunity, what's not. My partner, he focuses on the asset management side of things. He's a retired Navy commander. So he's repurposing his operational excellence from having run teams in the Navy to running third-party property management teams, CapEx teams, and whatnot. And so 
It's been complimentary for both of us. We built a portfolio of close to 200 doors now. But Mike, you and I met earlier this year because as things were slowing down in the real estate world, I took it as another opportunity to start learning more about other asset classes in the commercial world as well, right? Because multifamily makes up a small portion, not a small portion, but a minority portion of the overall pie of commercial real estate out there. And so over the past year, we've started looking more at multi-tenant retail as an opportunity. So that's where things sit today. And it's been a slow year so far. We closed a 20-unit multifamily deal about a month ago. But we're very excited going into 2024 and 2025. We think that we are going to see a lot more opportunities over the next 12 to 24 months. And I think the opening of the buying window that many of us have been waiting on the past few years. Yeah, it's funny that whole getting excited. And I did a show recently where we talked about the whole Warren Buffett and buying when people are scared. And it wasn't that long ago that it felt like missing out by not investing because everybody was so excited about multifamily and they were throwing around all kinds of great returns. And some of those deals now aren't as great as they were. And a lot of people are running from the doors and a lot of investors are scared. But now I'm hearing people who are close to it saying, this is the opportunity we've been waiting for. This is actually the good stuff. What is it that gets you excited about the next couple of years? Yeah. So it's a case where with the commercial real estate market, at least parts of it, like let's take multifamily as an example, many of the fundamentals are still there. Yeah. I mean, like, look, we don't have a shortage of 4 million units anymore. That's what syndicators were pitching a few years ago. With all the cheap money out there, there were a ton of construction starts. The past couple of years now, some markets have oversupply, right? Versus undersupply. But all in all, the markets that we primarily focus on, which are the secondary and tertiary markets in Virginia primarily, we feel that as a whole, there's still undersupply. And the opportunity is that for those of us who financed right, we are sitting pretty, right? So the soonest one of our loan expirations is 2026. And so we have the duration to ride this out, right? And find the right point to exit the assets that we acquired the past couple of years. And as I alluded to, the fundamentals are still there. So rent growth has slowed, but for all of our assets, we haven't had to take rents down, right? The floor has been holding them steady. And the nice thing was that we were able to get our year three, year four, year five performer rents upfront year one. So we were already ahead of business plan anyway. And we've been able to control expenses as well in our market. So the X factor obviously has been insurance for a lot of investors especially those in the coastal markets uh, in Virginia, and especially you know, along the 81 corridor, which is the western part of the state, the yeah, insurance has gone up a little bit, but it's not like what you see down in Florida, Charleston, and some of the coastal areas where you know, natural disasters have been more of a concern, right? But all this to say, ultimately, that the fundamentals still hold. And at the end of the day, with where mortgage rates are, right, this is going to continue to be a nation of renters. Uh, a lot of folks that otherwise would have bought, right? They're going to have to continue renting until rates get to a more reasonable level. Construction starts have been down as well with where financing is, right? It's tougher for a developer to get financing for a new project. And so I think it's one of those things like from an operation standpoint, things are holding, even if we are in a bit of a down period. 
And we see a path over the next five years where rents will start growing again, right? Expenses have been controlled this year versus the past couple of years. And we expect that expenses for the most part are going to continue to be controlled. And the nice thing is, my thesis is that if you're able to underwrite an asset in pencils at today's rates, if you have long duration enough debt, you'll find a right point in the next five to 10 years to exit that asset, right? Assuming that you're able to operate it for your business plan, right? You'll be able to exit it for a price where you will make a profit. That's interesting when you say that, because if things work out with today's numbers, rates could go higher. But if it works now and you're not going to have a change and rates go back down, things just get better. It's funny how we all get excited about buying when rates are low, but often buying at low rates is where things can look worse down the road. But if you buy it, make it work at a high rate, there's just room for it to get better. Exactly. Talking about now beyond multifamily investing, because that's where we first met. Mm -hmm. So what brought you into looking at these other asset classes, like retail and industrial? What do you like about that right now versus multifamily? Yeah, so I actually have a little bit of a background in retail. So one of the startups I was at was a retailer, like a venture-backed retailer doing innovative things. They created a category called retail as a service. So what they were doing was products that were started on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. They'd serve as their first physical location in a physical setting. And what they were doing was they were charging the makers of those products a flat subscription fee to effectively showrooming their products. This was a concept that really caught on, not just in the US, but with the international retail community. And so I was part of a startup that was acquired by them and they brought me on board to run international. And so I was responsible for opening stores in the Middle East and in Japan. And it was a really cool experience, right? And I was able to learn a good bit about the retail industry through that experience. And so it was always something that was kind of on the back of my mind as I was getting my commercial real estate journey going. And for me, the opportunity that I see with retail moving forward is that in aggregate, retail vacancy is at relative lows if you look on a 10-year basis. And I think a big reason why is because some of the development dollars went toward other asset classes like multifamily and industrial. And I don't think the development dollars in retail caught up with the demand, which is why we are in a period of relative undersupply, right? If you really think about it, like, yes, strip centers and shopping centers have been getting built. And then there has been mixed use, right? Where the retail makes up 20% or less of the overall square footage. But yeah, that dynamic is something that excites me. And the cool thing is, at the end of the day, there are a lot of similarities between multifamily investing and retail investing, right? So for example, when you're executing a value-add strategy, right? In multifamily world, one of the things that we're looking to do is kill the loss to lease, right? Basically, if market rents for a unit are 1400 bucks and the rents today that for the building that we're taking over are 700 bucks, then we're going to try to get it as close as we can to 1400 bucks, right? On lease renewal. And I think the same sort of principle applies in retail, right? We're looking for assets where leases are under market, 
We're looking at assets where there is a bit of vacancy, right? Because if we fill it, we can improve the net operating income. Um, and there are also opportunities to, say, take gross leases, convert them to net leases, and basically pass back some of the expenses to the tenants. And that's something that we do in the multifamily world where we'll charge utility billback fees, right? So we'll bill water sewer back to tenants as an example. And so it's basically taking the framework that we've used to build our multifamily portfolio and then applying it to retail. And the nice thing about retail is that there's less competition from what we're seeing versus the multifamily world, which has just been red hot, right? The last several years since the 2012 crisis, so since the financial crisis. And so that's been a bit refreshing. Yeah. I mean, that's really how I ended up was working in multifamily and just couldn't find deals. People were paying crazy numbers for anything residential or multifamily, and it was hard to make it pencil out. And you started looking at other asset classes. There was nobody there. They weren't doing it. It's funny because you're in Richmond, Virginia now, right? So I'm based in Miami these days. Oh, that's right. You just moved. Yeah. So Richmond is a market that we've been dying to get into and on the multifamily side the past few years. It's one of those markets that just went institutional the past few years during COVID. So it's been tough on the multifamily side. And so we're trying to access retail deal flow as another means of entering the market. (laughs) This whole Richmond connection, because that's where I did my residency training at VCU in Richmond. And I hear all this stuff now about Richmond being one of the hot markets in the country. And it's like DC has finally crept its way all the way down to Richmond. When I was in Richmond in the early 2000s, I think half of the years I was there, it was like the murder capital of America. It was a rough town. Mm -hmm. And now to hear about all these things that are going on in Richmond, I'm almost like, I just need to get on a plane and go back to Richmond and just see how different it is. Yeah, it was one of those cities where I grew up an hour and a half away, right? And I don't remember going there as a kid, right? There was no real incentive for my parents to take us to go spend, say, a weekend in Richmond. And I think it's a testament to not just Richmond, but just a lot of these southern cities in general, right? These old tobacco towns and how they've been able to evolve and rebuild a new identity, Right. And so Richmond has become the home to a number of Fortune 500 companies. Capital One, they have about 20,000 workers that work out of there. CarMax is there, right? You still have Altria out there. And then (laughs) it's a diversified economy where companies in different industries continue to move in to that market. And the same holds true as you know with the research triangle, right? Where it's become this big tech hub in the Southeast. And you can point to a number of other smaller cities and towns where that has been the case. So I think that's a dynamic I think just made the Southeast as a whole, right, really attractive to investors over the past decade. How much retail building are you seeing down there? Because Where I live, Southeast Green Bay in the last year has exploded. Now, exploded is a relative term because it's a smaller market, but there's more retail construction going on right now than I've seen in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. It's really, and I don't know if we're looking at because rates are higher and some of the hot markets have cooled and sometimes then money comes to the Midwest. One part of town is all kinds of retail around Lambeau Field. I think there's three or four new hotels that have gone up in the last year. So there's a lot of building going on here in these 
other spaces. Are you seeing that in the Southeast also, or is it still focused on multifamily? Yeah, no, we are seeing retail development across the Southeast as well. It's just at the pace of retail development. So if you were to do a ratio of new multifamily developments to retail developments, the multifamily developments have outpaced retail developments. But at the end of the day, when you have net migration patterns happening, where folks are moving from out of market into these markets, they're going to need amenities of all types, right? And they're going to need access to retail as well, right? So definitely seeing that happening across the Southeast and especially the markets that we focus on. So with your background in venture capital, I'm going to kind of make a U-turn here because you've got a view of the financial markets and how bigger money moves around that a lot of us don't. And I've had docs kind of ask me and they're like, well, in retail or industrial, everything's owned by bigger players. Or there's just this assumption that you can only as an individual investor, especially if you're being active, can only buy houses or duplexes and that these other things are owned by bigger players and there's no room in that market. And it took me a while to wrap my head around that there's kind of a space for the small guy and the next bigger guy and the next bigger guy. Can you just expand on that of how the money flows through bigger venture institutions when you talk about institutional money? Yeah, let me draw an analogy to kind of what happens in the venture space and try to apply it to the real estate space. So in the venture space, what was happening during COVID was you had a set of funds that had been long established, right? Well before COVID. And so these funds, they raised bigger and bigger funds the past few years, right? Many of them are raising multi-billion dollar funds. And so with multi-billion dollar funds, you've got to write some big checks to be able to deploy that over five years, right? And so what happened was that opened up room at the early stages for new players to jump in, right? The seed stage, uh, the Series A stage. And so a lot of the newer funds, uh, basically funds where the LPs tend to be more high net worth individuals, maybe smaller family offices versus, say, universities and pension funds and your traditional other LPs in the larger institutional funds, they found room to operate. And it's one of those things where if you look at performance over time, in aggregate, top performing seed and Series A funds outperform the top performing Series C and Series D and Series E funds, right? And I think the same applies in real estate, where what we found is that in the multifamily space, there's a space that is less compared to the others. And what I mean by that is that, let's say, up to a $2 million deal right? That's the sort of deal that a weekend warrior, a high net worth individual can take on their own, right? So you're competing with a large crowd when you're going for an asset that's say a one or $2 million, right? But then the institutions, they compete for assets that tend to be 150 units or higher, right? And so these are 15, 20, $25 million assets, right? And what we found is that there's a space that is too large for the retail investor but too small for the institutional investor, there tends to be less competition. And then there also tends to be a good amount of opportunity to run a value add program. And so that's kind of where we focused on, right? Identifying we're competing in a smaller pond, in essence, right? And we've just got a better path to better overall returns on a percentage basis. 
And so then even the institutions that are buying the 100 units and bigger ones, there may even be small institutions that are buying those, but then they may package them and sell them up the chain to some even bigger institution. It's like the big fish and the smaller fish, where if somebody's got a billion dollar fund, they don't write a check for under $20 million or $50 million. So there's really this space in there, just depending on the size of the people writing the checks. And I love that, that you're above the retail investor, but below most of the funds and you kind of find your space in there. Have you found that as you've started looking beyond multifamily in retail also or in some other asset classes? Yeah, we are coming across assets that do fit that, right? So generally, uh, what we're seeing is that if a deal is, say, over $2 million, but it's under, say, double digits in terms of millions, in terms of dollars, there tends to be that space where we might be competing with smaller groups, smaller family offices, less competition, right? We're still working our way through that to really figure out what that is because we're a bit newer to the multi-tenant retail space. But that's kind of been my hypothesis as I've explored it the past several months. Okay. The interesting thing to do, Michael, is that in that space, debt matters a ton, right? And I think like what makes doing new multi-tenant retail deals challenging in this climate is that if you're looking for non-recourse options, you're typically going to life companies and folks of that ilk, and they've really cut back in terms of loan proceeds, right? And so the last I heard when I checked in with one of our brokers on that front is they were maybe going up to 60 LTV for a couple of the deals that we were looking at, right? So you have to bring a lot of cash out of pocket in terms of equity, if you want to pursue a non-recourse loan. And then even for recourse debt, right? Community banks and regional banks, uh, they pulled back too in terms of risk appetite. And so maybe a year or two ago, our mentor, he mentioned that he was getting ADL TV debt back then. It's hard to get that now from a community bank or a regional bank, right? You're maybe in somewhere in the 70s on a max basis. And so all that goes to say that you got to bring a lot of cash to the table, which is going to eliminate a lot of the competition, potentially. That's a really interesting thing to dig into of how that's changed the whole market and where that money comes from. So with that, let's wrap up this first half of our conversation. And thank you so much for being here, Karthik. I think this has been an awesome value to our listeners. And please join us for the second half of this conversation with Karthi. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better, so I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. And number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. I'm looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.